When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a chief compliance officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This month, it's Susan Divers. In episode three, Susan moves to the CECO chair at AECOM. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with our continued exploration of the Compliance Life with Susan Divers. Uh, In this episode, uh, Susan has moved to AECOM to the CECO chair, and we're going to take a deep dive into that. So, Susan, first of all, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Always a pleasure to talk to you. So, Susan, at the end of our last episode, you told us how you had moved over to AECOM uh, to be their CECO. And I wanted to ask, what was it like for you at that time with AECOM? Um, From my perception, they're one of the biggest, least well-known companies around because they're huge and they're everywhere. Uh, yes. but perhaps not as high profile as, as some other U.S. companies. So what was it like moving from an SAIC, SAIC over to an AECOM? Well, one of my friends said, do you only work for companies that no one knows? And I said, yeah, because um, SAIC wasn't, wasn't particularly well known in those days either. Um, but um, I didn't really know too much about AECOM until the headhunter uh, got in touch with me. And then the more I read about them, the more impressed I was, because even in those days, um, which was, I think, 2009, they were really international. um, And they were working on, I think, eight of the top 10 global infrastructure uh, projects in the world. Um, So they were heavy hitters. And they had had the same type of culture that um, SAIC had, and then it was heavily populated by engineers. So global infrastructures projects means lots of government touch points. So how did you navigate a um, compliance program, particularly a international anti-corruption compliance program for a company that is uh, governed by the FCPA? How did you help navigate that for uh, AECOM? 
Well, there are a couple of answers to that. Um, one is, as you know, you have to scale out um, your program. Um, you can't just have it at headquarters and expect everybody to do what they're supposed to do or know about it. Um, so we had, um, we had lawyers around the world and they were the major touch points, but we also set up regional compliance committees with the business leaders as well as lawyers and the finance chief and the HR chief. Um, and they were good vehicles for explaining what we were trying to do and why. Um, and then the second big element, and here I was very lucky, um, was I had extremely strong partners. Um, our VP of communications at the time, who's now I think the EVP for all communications at Voya, um, Paul Gennaro, uh, and he won a slew of awards for the work he did in, in the ethics and compliance area with me. Um, Paul was a great partner in terms of getting the message out. And as you know, Tom, one and done doesn't work. Um, it has to be a whole web of communication and, and making resources easy to find, um, making them accessible in terms of what you're trying to convey. You can't just quote US statutes at people and expect them to do what they're supposed to do. And then lastly, too, um, I had an extremely strong partner in audit um, who's still there. And um, he just was was with me you know, every day uh, in terms of planning how we drove the assurance function as well as the communications and the training. Uh, especially in the area of anti-corruption. So you said something in an earlier episode that I really wanted to tie into what you just said about your early experience at AECOM. And I think it was at SAIC. It was something along the lines of, no one can tell you what to do, but you can't tell anyone else what to do. And that struck me as fabulous training for a CECO because all you really have is your persuasion and to be able to uh, not simply collaborate with your colleagues, but actually engage with them uh, to move your program forward. And it sounds like you brought those skills and you use those skills at Ecom to get engagement with a wide variety of other uh, corporate partners and disciplines. Would that be a, a fair characterization? I think that would be, Tom. And in my experience, most people do want to do the right thing. They might not know what it is, Oh, and and it's really important to explain why. Um, and as you and I could talk about for the next probably two weeks, um, nonstop, um, rules only take you so far. You have to really focus on values. And AECOM really had a strong commitment to excellence. It was part of their engineering um, culture. And they had, um, they had a real willingness to look at things realistically um, as a whole. You know, there were some people that needed sort of extra persuasion. Um, but being able to say, you know, these are the reasons why we can't engage in corruption, even if it's the way business is done here, um, or it means that we're going to have to walk away, um, then, you know, you're making it accessible to people. Um, and the communications part of it was huge. And then, frankly, we also won the lottery in that the first year I was there, 
I led an effort to become a world's most ethical company, and against the odds, we made it. And then we were, we were I think, WME for five years, and that drove our brand because people really said, oh yeah, that's part of how we do business. That's part of our culture of excellence and integrity. And the leadership, of course, was extremely supportive of that as well. Uh, you mentioned a couple of things. Uh, one is values. Uh, we're going to take a deep dive into values uh, when we get you to LRN. But I was really intrigued by uh, your experience at AECOM. Uh, really, uh, I don't want to say validated what uh, Dov has said for years at LRN, but really ties directly to, to your experiences going forward that it really is about values and the value in values and how you, how you were able to put those values into practice at AECOM. And I wanted to ask, could you say a few words about really the, the executive leadership or the very top of the company leading uh, those values that you saw at AECOM? Oh, yeah. And I was lucky. Um, I, I worked with very competent and very um, people with a lot of integrity um, who, if they understood um, what the issue was, and that's where I think values come in to communicating what the issue is. You can't just walk in and say, hey, this is a violation of, you know, the it's a probable violation of the uh, anti-corruption statutes. You have to say, this is not how we do business. Um, and one of the best things that happened at AECOM was we had the tier right, I mean, the leadership was great at the top, and then we had the sort of middle managers, they were more sort of upper middle managers, um, and I remember one of them um, turned down a tainted deal that was a, a single source contract um, in a place in Eastern Europe. Let's just leave it at that. Um, and it, it was a hundred million. It was something that the company had done, but it was tainted. Um, and he turned it down not once, but three times because some people on his team just couldn't believe that we were, they were walking, we were walking away. And we actually profiled that um, we started doing profiles in compliance or in ethics, and um, we profiled what he had done because um, he did it. He did it without sort of being asked even to do it. That was just what he did. And I saw other people do things like that routinely at AECOM. So tying it into the company values and the company culture, which was a good culture, really made the program work. I would like to ask a little bit about your experience as the CECO in regards to the following. You've talked about your career as a lawyer, both in private practice and in-house. But when you move to the CECO chair, uh, you actually take on another role, which you become a part of the executive team. And you have to maybe think or look a little bit differently than you had as a lawyer. And you talked about being very project-focused and uh, enjoying big, complicated projects and kind of working through those. My, my sense is as CECO, you still may be involved in those, but you may have to use another set of skills as an executive leader. Could you talk about uh, those and how you were able to either uh, generate the muscles to, to do that or, or perhaps uh, re-engage muscles you hadn't used in a while? Well, you really have to be flexible and you're right. I mean, when I was at SAIC, I was much more sort of tactical um, and when I was at AECOM, I had to become much more strategic. Um, and I was lucky to build a good team who could execute. Um, and 
I think one of the reasons our team was was effective is we took on big projects and we succeeded um, most of the time. Um, you know, we were revamping how we onboarded third parties. And as you probably know, that's sort of a thankless task because um, nobody really likes being told who they can hire or that they need another level of scrutiny. Um, and that was a big deal. I mean, that involved many stakeholders um, from um, uh, procurement to IT, uh, to contracts, on and on and on, and the operations. And so having other partners in the company helping us drive that was essential. Um, and so that kind of really strategic like focus to say, this is where we need to go. Um, and that's still, I think, somewhat cutting edge to have a, a whole system for managing third party vendors that risk ranks them and all. Um, and, you know, we redid our training as well. And so you have to really be able to take your head out of the foxhole and say, okay, um, yes, we have to deal with all these issues about training, but are we with the right vendor? Are we um, using the right content? And, um, you know, and sort of have a big vision, if you will. I'd like to ask you about uh, a phrase you've used a couple of times, building out your team. And I was wondering, as the CECO, what did you look for for people to bring on board your team? Was it uh, academics? Was it practical experience? Was it uh, 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 the job they'd had before or, or perhaps something different? Could you tell us really about your, how you built your team out as the CECO? Well, I have a bias towards action. Um, actually, maybe the best compliment I got was when I was working as an English lawyer in London and somebody said to me, you're really a doer. And that was a really nice compliment. And that is probably where I get the most satisfaction. Um, so I looked for people who were doers. Um, and, you know, I recruited people who were in the business units in a number of instances rather than go outside. And the problem with going outside, as everybody knows, is, is somebody might work well in one culture and not in another. Um, but I did bring in uh, a couple people from the outside. And then, um, I, but I hired within too, and that really worked out well. Um, but again, I had a real bias towards people who knew how to take on a project and, and make it work. Um, and for me, you know, that's, that's the type of person I don't really care, you know, what they look like or, or um, anything else. I really care whether they really want to accomplish things and see projects through to the end. Uh, Susan, we unfortunately are near the end of our time. In our next episode, we're going to take up your role, roles, I should say, probably better, at LRN over the years. But before we leave, I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself or some of the topics we've touched on. What would be the best way to get in touch with you? Oh, Tom, um, my LinkedIn profile is probably a good way because that way um, you can see what I've written. Um, but I'm also very easy to find at LRN. Susan, I look forward to uh, continuing this conversation. Thanks, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you'll join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of The Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. 
Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.